Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. These days, the bus to Dublin city centre is always late. Every day I leave the house at 8am sharp and meet the postman on my way out. Waking up before sunrise doesn't really get easier. Just a few years back, I could never have imagined myself like this. I'm making my own way in this world, this country, and it's clumsy and awkward, and fatigue seeps deep into my bones along with the rain. But I wouldn't have it any other way. The bus smells like hot-pressed cotton fabric, sweat, disturbed sleep, and obligation. The sun is just starting to rise, faint light barely coming through fogged-up windows on the upper deck. The first rule with public transport is that you will always, somehow, end upon the most crowded bus. The second rule is that the collective annoyance of the passengers will do nothing to speed up the bus. Most of the time, it will have the exact opposite effect. These are three hours every day of sweaty, second-hand air that none of us will ever get back. So even though all that irritated energy is very potent, ultimately it has no aim. I drift in and out of consciousness, head falling forward. Just to look more put together, I pretend to check the time on my wristwatch now and again. For whose benefit, I really don't know. It's always a crawl along the M50, stretching from the outskirts of Northside Dublin. People speak on the phone in hushed tones. Nobody's first language is English. Nobody on this bus was born here. And neither was I. My name is written and pronounced in distorted ways, and I've long given up on trying to correct it. There are too many languages I understand, but can't speak. Some days English comes to me naturally, easily, almost like breathing. And some days my native language pokes through more noticeably, and I choose to keep silent. Having an accent feels like failure. Not having one feels like betrayal. I watch the people around me, and I think that some of the ghosts that cling to us are only there because we let them. We leave our front doors open for them in a quiet invitation, or maybe we simply don't ask them to leave. We carry the people their lives have been intertwined with. I have my father's face and my mother's tired ambition. The sound of my silver rings clicking together is a distant childhood memory, a lot of unsaid words and two cold rooms in November. I push up my sleeves the same way my middle school friend used to, the friend who now lives on the other side of the world. The way I absentmindedly play with my pen is a shadow of another someone who used to be my best friend. Muscle memory is basic, instinctive, primal. It doesn't make out the difference between burnt bridges and newly built ones. I wonder if the woman opposite me raises her eyebrows like her grandmother did. I wonder if the man drawing circles around his thumb with a nervous urgency has picked the habit up from a colleague. When I came to live in Ireland, the only book I could bring with me was a collection of essays by a Latvian writer. In one of those essays, he writes about the physical gravity that things have, how they feel in the body. The distance we are from the center of something affects the gravitational force that it has on us. But there are other forms of gravity acting upon us at all times. The gravity of emotion, the gravity of success, 
the gravity of failure. In its natural form, happiness is not weightless, but it is not heavy either. It has a healthy, natural type of weight. In the same way a person feels their physical being having mass, happiness has a comfortable weight, a comfort in knowing that you're really there. All that gravity comes together in the passengers of this morning rush hour bus, and I have to use all the strength I have not to be pulled down by it. These days I'm learning to live with the fact that every bit of grief and anger I hold has to coexist in the same space as my peace and my joy. We all get up in the morning, drink our coffee out of habit, and just before leaving the house we tuck all the grief we have in the inside pocket of our raincoats, along with a set of scratched-up keys. And just like that, we all get on the bus together, and hope we'll make it on time for work. The door opens, and I get off a few minutes too late. The same every day. The rest of my fellow passengers and their stories drift off and disappear into the city rush hour traffic. Us was late and forced us all to congregate. Twenty-seven strangers made to stand and wait. The time went by, the sun went down, the baby cried. Composer Felix Mendelssohn was just four years old in 1813 when Thomas Moore published one of his best love songs, The Last Rose of Summer which was included in Volume 5 of Moore's Irish Melodies. Fourteen years later, Mendelssohn composed a fantasia for piano based on the Irish poet's work, which became the composer's Opus 15. In 2010, when our embassy in Berlin moved into the Mendelssohn house on the city's Jägerstrasse, where the family's bank and residence had been located, the Mendelssohn Society presented me with a facsimile of Opus 15 together with a second document connecting that famous Berlin family with Ireland. It was a pamphlet written by the composer's grandson, Albrecht Mendelssohn Bartholdi, entitled Ireland, an example of power politics. Albrecht, a distinguished lawyer, published it in Leipzig in 1918 while World War I was still raging, and the prospects for independence were on the rise in Ireland in the aftermath of the Easter Rising. Albert Mendelssohn concluded that Britain had used its power to seize Ireland, but that it had failed to win over the Irish people. He insisted that Ireland could no longer be part of the United Kingdom and envisaged Irish independence, perhaps as part of a united Europe, an ambition of which he was supportive. Backing his case for Irish independence, he quoted Henry Grattan's comment in 1782 to the effect that nature has not given any one nation a right over another. I wonder if Nancy Wise Power came across Albrecht Mendelssohn when she arrived in Berlin in May 1921 on a mission to garner support for Irish independence. As an influential German who was positive about Ireland's claims, he was certainly part of her target audience. Wise Power was exceptionally well qualified for the task of promoting the Irish cause in Germany for she had spent two years before the war studying for her doctorate at the University of Bonn under the renowned German Celtic scholar Julius Pocorny. 
Nancy had an impeccable political pedigree, for her parents, John and Jenny, had taken part in every nationalist movement of the previous four decades. John Wise Power was a leading Dublin journalist, a supporter of the Land League, a member of the Gaelic League and one of the founders of the JA in 1884. Nancy's mother, Jenny, had been a fervent supporter of Parnell, a member of the Ladies' Land League, a committed suffragist and the first president of Common the Mon. The 1916 proclamation was actually signed at the family shop on Henry Street. Unlike a majority of members of Common the Mon, Jenny supported the treaty and served in the Senate from 1923 to 1936, initially as part of Common the Goyle, but later as a member of Fianna Fáil. Her daughter Nancy, who had acted as a courier during Easter week 1916, spent 18 months in Berlin. That first Irish mission to Germany, of which she was part, did fine work in producing an Irish bulletin twice a week containing a German-language compilation of material favourable to the Irish case for independence, which was delivered to newspapers all over Germany. With her knowledge of the language, Weisspower was undoubtedly well-suited for a more permanent diplomatic role in Germany. The Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs at the time acknowledged that she was a talented Dublin lady, but he nevertheless felt the need to appoint a more experienced man to the post, John Chartres, an ally of Michael Collins, who was part of the Irish delegation that negotiated the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921. After she left Berlin, Nancy joined the Department of Industry and Commerce as a civil servant, and later worked as private secretary to the Minister for Local Government and the future president, Sean T. O'Kelly, who had been a long-time friend of her parents. She climbed to a senior rank in the Irish civil service before retiring in 1954. Albrecht Mendelssohn, who in the best traditions of his family was also an excellent pianist and a talented composer, was part of the German delegation at the Versailles Conference and became a leading German authority on international relations during the politically fraught interwar years. On account of his Jewish background, in 1934 he was sacked from his professorship and forced to flee Germany. He died in Oxford two years later. Nancy's father appears in Ulysses as John Wise Nolan, one of the argumentative drinkers in the Cyclops episode, where he is heard to complain about the ingratitude of Ireland's friends in Europe. We gave our best blood to France and Spain, but what do we ever get for it, said he. By the time the novel was published in 1922, John Wise's real-life daughter was part of a fledgling Irish diplomatic service, seeking support for Ireland in France, Spain, Germany and elsewhere. James Joyce was almost certainly not aware of that quirky coincidence. Had he known about it, I'd like to think it would have brought a smile to his face, just as the last rose of summer evidently brought joy to Felix Mendelssohn when he came across it in Berlin a century before.
Let me take you back to a winter Sunday afternoon a while ago. I opened the back door into the farmhouse and the dogs Molly and Tess come bounding towards me. Molly wags her tail so much she may take off like a Jack Russell helicopter. Tess, a mass of black and white fur, more sheep than dog, slinks back under the table. I smell the roast lamb, onions, carrots and potatoes cooking. His face lights up as I approach him, his arms outstretched for a hug, and I plant a soft kiss on his cheek. The blue jug I brought him back from the Azores sits centre stage on the table, stuffed with pink hydrangea from his garden. I put my chocolate pudding in the fridge and then make the gravy. We sit and eat and chat about the family, the neighbours and that match may own nearly one. I wash the dishes and we sit in companionable silence with our tea in front of the turf fire reading the paper. I still love those Sunday afternoons with this man, one of my favourite people on earth. He is not my husband. He is not my lover. He is my 88-year-old uncle. It took me a while to realise his true value in my life. For a time, I believed my weekly visits were motivated by duty. How wrong I was. Martin is my late father's little brother. He never married. He never left the home place. He and his sister May tended to his sick mother for years until she passed away. He is and always was my favourite uncle. You see, every summer through the 1960s and 70s, we piled into the little white Austin A30 in Nottingham. Suitcases tied on the roof with orange baling twine. My right buttock wedged firmly against the wheel arch. My father drove my mother, my three brothers and me home to my grandparents' farm near Charlestown. All the aunts, uncles and cousins were gathered there, squished into that little farmhouse. No hotel, no matter how luxurious, could possibly have yielded us more pleasure. I remember mornings of climbing over piles of brothers and cousins, all sleeping top to toe, to find the Uncle Marty in the kitchen lighting the range. I felt warm and safe and loved, as he helped me pull on my wellies. Buckets in hand, the dogs with us, we walked down the hill to the bottom of the field to the well, my hand snug in his. The morning sun pouring light into the living room of my childhood. Newly mown hay, birdsong, bees falling into foxgloves. We would leave the fresh water on the windowsill at the back door and then amble up the lane to fetch the cows for milking. I can still feel the steamy breath of the cattle warming my face as I helped tether them and stroked their foreheads. I can see him sat on the stool in the byre, squeezing the milk into the silver pail. He would then let me pull and pull on those pink udders whilst a few drops dribbled from the teat. Ah, you're a great girlin. She will have your milk in the whole herd by the time you go home. After days helping to bring in the hay or afternoons footing turf on the bog, when the dinner was eaten and the jobs all done, we sat down around the fire 
with two packs of double diamond cards. If we had played for real money, Marty would be a millionaire, his diffident manner fooling us all. He would carry on playing his hand, oblivious to me perched on his knee, putting ribbons into his mop of brown curly hair, his blue eyes dancing with delight. When my life fell apart a decade ago, it was to this quiet, gentle man that I came. He asked me no questions. He made me endless pots of tea. We sat there beside the range. I felt as warm and safe and loved as that little girl struggling with her wellies. Now, when the Angelus bell rings as we take our last sups of tea and I hear that solemn voice from Midwest Radio begin again, the death has occurred. I open the back door and hug him a little too tightly as we say our goodbyes for another week. I pat the dogs and shoo them back inside. On the drive back to Westport, I wonder how I will cope without the tenderness, the treasure of these ordinary Sunday afternoons with my uncle, who wants nothing from me but my presence and a little of my attention. Why did it take me so long to remember that time spent doing very little with someone I love is one of the greatest pleasures in life? There is walking, and then there is walking beside the flowing water of a river. I find myself, like the poet and short story writer Raymond Carver, drawn to rivers. It pleases me, he wrote, loving rivers, loving them all the way back to their source, loving everything that increases me. What is it about flowing water that fascinates us? Something instinctual, primitive, I suspect, though I am not sure but I do know that I am fortunate in living close to the River Dodder. I wander along its banks, west towards Glenasmole, or east towards the mouth of the Liffey where it meets Dublin Bay. These riparian outings always replenish the soul. I stop frequently to take photographs, but they never quite capture what it was that moved me to stop in the first place. I stand still, but the river does not wait for me. The unceasing pull that the ocean exerts on the river has to be more than just the force of gravity, surely. It seems spiritual somehow, this relentless urge of rivers to return to the sea. Upstream, the daughter flows through the valley of Glenasmole, the one-time summer hunting ground of the Fianna, where Ushin returned from Tirnanog in search of his former comrades, only to fall from his horse and break the spell of timelessness. I picture the magnificent Ushin on the white steed Einvar in the moments before catastrophe strikes, and then the old man he becomes. I imagine the tiny microscopic particles of Ushin's aged body finding their way into the river and becoming one with it. 
Is there some trace yet of Ushin in the bed of the river Dodder? Has some part of me, the river bank walker, entered the river too? From Glenismole, the river makes its way past ancient graveyards and monasteries, past the headquarters of the Church of Scientology, through the channel of mill races, down weirs, over waterfalls, under the bridge where the home of Austin Clark once stood, and the house of the poet was known by the trees. The gush of water is relentless, flowing over obstacles, creating eddies, moving sand and pebbles to form little islands where duck and waterfowl take up their stations. Downstream from the weir at Milltown, I watch a heron who stands, one-legged, and who in turn waits and watches. A kingfisher is a blur of luminescence, sudden and fleeting in its beauty. And I think of Gerard Manley Hopkins, who immortalised the kingfisher catching fire. At Ashton's pub, where my father worked as a barman for many years, I follow the river to Donnybrook. The path is narrow and tree-lined. The willows are returning to life. The water flows in abundance over the weirs that once fed the paper mills. A man sits on the edge of a weir fishing, the white water rushing all around him. A dog, a red setter, runs to the water's edge and barks. But the river is not for turning, and it is the dog who slinks away. A single crow, perched on the branch of an overhanging tree, calls loudly and incessantly, singing a song of complaint that feels comical on this glorious spring morning. The river hugs Herbert Park and its avenue of cherry blossoms, and it is as if I am in a different country. In the early morning the park is sleepy, the tea room still, the swans folded in on themselves. Beyond Ball's Bridge the river widens. There's not a breeze stirring, so the water carries the sky and the black calligraphic stroke of birds against the occasional white cloud. Under the shadow of the stadium at Lansdowne, a man is sitting on a camp chair in a grove of trees. His tent rests snug in the shelter of the new bridge. He is king of the morning. I offer him a wave of salutation. He nods in acknowledgement. Now the river has become tidal and the flow increases as the water senses the journey's end is in sight. I'm not sure of the origin of the name Dodder or its Irish version on Dochre. In Middle English, the meaning of our modern Dodder is to shake or tremble. But this is no uncertain, trembling river. It meets a river Liffey at the Grand Canal dock that already has one foot in the sea. It meets the Liffey head-on. As I make my way back upstream, I am dimly aware that the city lies beyond the riverbanks, but only dimly. Here is a world of flow and freshness. I do not imagine that the river will ever lose its power to draw me towards it. As I walk this riverbank, one foot in front of the other, each step a continuation, like an infinity of and and next and 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 next, I realise that walking is a form of poetry, a form of love, of loving a river all the way back to its source, of loving everything that increases me.
today and tomorrow and yesterday too the flowers are dying like all things do follow me close I'm going to Bali and Ali Dublin Times says the lettering under the clock above Galway Camera Shop and an old friend living in the capital often ribs me about that when I'm late to meet him. I live in Galway, which was once 11 and a half minutes behind the East Coast when we all relied on local time. But that is no excuse for keeping anyone waiting way back then or now. You left your manners west for the Shannon and you just think your time is more important than anyone else's, an acquaintance snapped at me once. Back before mobile phones, you couldn't text an update en route, so an extreme case of lateness could, on occasion, turn into the even more extreme no-show. My reputation for being late got so bad that a teacher even gave my son a cartoon book entitled Why Steve Was Late – 101 Exceptional Excuses for Terrible Timekeeping. I've never had the words to explain why I did, and still do, collapse into a minor panic, which inevitably delays me, before leaving the house. But I do know that once a friend's lack of punctuality saved both of our lives. It was 49 years ago this week. Liz Casey and I knew each other through Grade 10 Canoe Club on the River Liffey, where we became firm friends. Those were the days of patchouli-sprinkled Afghan coats from the dandelion market and bomber jackets and loafer shoes. Liz had bought one particularly bright-coloured check jacket from Guineys in Talbot Street, which I had my eye on. I didn't have the money, but she offered to bring me to Guineys to have a look as she wanted to change hers. I thought it looked great in her, but she felt it was a bit too small. We arranged the date, a Friday, when I'd be coming from school and she'd be coming from Lucan. We agreed to meet on O'Connell Bridge at 5pm. Ever optimists, we knew there was a bus strike, but she said she would thumb a lift, no problem, and I would walk into town. Unusually for me, I was on time. There was no sign of Liz, though. The sun was shining, there was plenty to look at, and at one point I took out my Latin verbs to try and learn them off. Come 25 past, though, I knew we weren't going to make it to Guineas before the shops closed. The bus errand provincial routes were still running. I'd give Liz a bit longer, but if she didn't turn up soon, I knew I could catch one home to County Kildare. I was still on O'Connell Bridge when the noise came several minutes later. It was like nothing I'd heard before. A series of rumbles, not quite claps of thunder, a grey pall of smoke rose above buildings behind Cleary's across from the GPO. Traffic was still crossing the bridge in both directions. For some minutes it seemed as if everything was normal, but that was when time actually stood still. There was a silence which seemed to last forever, before the distant sound of screaming and sirens and people running across the street. Witnesses to traumatic events talk about that feeling of paralysis before the brain moves into survival mode. Whatever way my brain was working, I remember the compulsion to run towards Talbot Street before being stopped. I don't remember how I got home that evening, but it was shortly before the Dublin and Monaghan bombings made the evening news. 
my parents were blissfully unaware of what had happened. They hadn't even known about my plan to go shopping on Talbot Street. When we did turn on the television, the images were harrowing. One eyewitness, who spoke to RTE news reporter Barry Linan, described how the bus strike meant that there were more pedestrians on the streets than normal at that time. The three car bombs in Dublin exploded over two minutes between 5.28 and 5.30pm in Parnell Street, Talbot Street and South Leinster Street. We heard that 23 men, women and children died that evening in Dublin and three others died as a result of injuries over the following few days. Father Pierce Duggan from Donny Carney told Linan how he was driving through the city near Talbot Street when the explosion occurred. He administered holy oils to many men and women and he described how many people gathered to help those injured and to clear the debris. He had been told there might be another explosion, but he stayed on to do what he could. Ninety minutes later, a fourth bomb went off in Monaghan, killing five people then, and two more died of injuries in the following weeks. No one has ever been convicted of the series of no-warning explosions which caused such grief and heartbreak to so many families, and never a May passes without many of us asking why. Almost two years ago, the name of the 35th victim was added to the memorial on Talbot Street. Baby Martha O'Neill was one of two unborn children who died, the other being Baby Doherty, whose mother, Colette Doherty, was just 20 years old when she was killed. It was a day or two later when my friend Liz phoned me. She said she hadn't been able to get a lift from Lucan, though she had tried. She wanted to apologise but I wouldn't let her. We had been the lucky ones. I still feel guilty even now for saying that. And so all I could do was thank her for being late. On this morning's mix of new and recent archive scripts, we heard Morning Rush Hour by Katrina Bruna. The Mendelssohn's and the Wise Powers was by Daniel Mulhall. Sunday Afternoons by Kate Carty Walking the Daughter by Kevin McDermott and Friday the 17th of May by Lorna Siggins The music was 27 Strangers by Villagers Fantasia on the Last Rose of Summer by Felix Mendelssohn played on piano by Martin Jones Tea for Two by Benny Goodman and I Contain Multitudes by Bob Dylan Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And a live event you may be interested in. Sunday Miscellany live at the Belfast Book Festival takes place next month at the Crescent Arts Centre in Belfast with guests Wendy Erskine, John Toll, Neil Hegarty and more. That's on Sunday the 18th of June. And for tickets, see crescentarts.org. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio player or the programme website. And you can find more from this and other arts and culture programmes on rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.